Father, we thank you for your church. And we ask that you will help us to understand more of the church and of your kingdom. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. I suspect you have noticed this by now, but our Western culture tells us that life is all about me. What I do, what I want, how I think, what I feel, how I interpret and and see events, it's all about me. Now, other people are important, but honestly, only as they relate to me. And other people are significant, but only as they enhance me. And other people are great, but only as they help me be me. What interests me is that this mindset of our culture is creeping into the church. Now let me rephrase that. This mindset of our culture has invaded the church. And we see it all around us. When I ask you, what does it mean to be a Christian? I suspect that your answer would have something to do with having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And you're right. It might have something to do with becoming more like Jesus Christ. And again, you're right. It might have something to do with being a witness for Christ and and living a life that honors Christ. And you're right. All of that is true. All of that is essential to what it means to be a Christian. But what we often fail to see is the significance of the connection between being a follower of Jesus Christ and being committed to the church, the body of Christ. I think most of the time when we think of what does it mean to be a Christian, it's about us and Jesus. But when we read the scriptures and when we look at, honestly, the history of the church, it's having a relationship with Jesus and being connected to other believers. Both parts are, make up what it means to be a Christian. And what we sometimes miss is that we think our connection to the church is peripheral. What we don't understand is that that mindset is stunting our growth and it is weakening our resources and it's hindering our witness, but it's difficult for us to see in the culture in which we live, which is why the third chapter of Nehemiah is essential reading for us. Now, you're probably thinking, really? Seriously? The third chapter of Nehemiah, right? Really? Someone said to me this week when they found out that I was doing this, said, did somebody dare you to preach on that passage? (laughs) How much money are you getting for this, winning this bet? Now, you know, no one one was begging to read scripture today. In fact, we had had staff do it at both services because they have to do it. I made them, you know, they, they couldn't get out of it. All of those names, all of those, all of those places, all of those people. And, you know, I recognize that this passage seems to us like sort of unnecessary to the scriptures. 
When you consider all that, that, that God could have put into the limited space that we call the, the Bible, you have to scratch your head and say, this was that important? I mean, just tell us, okay, people got together, they built a wall, let's move on to the important stuff. Why do I need to know about those people? Why do I need to know about those places? Why is that significant? It's significant because I believe there's something here for us to understand, to grasp, to believe, to live as followers of Christ that we could not get without this chapter. See, one of the things that we, I think, often fail to recognize is that participation in the kingdom is not an option. It's an expectation for followers of Christ. We tend to see it as an option. And when you, when you think about our participation in the body of Christ, we can come up with a million reasons why we aren't going to do that. Because we think it's an option. But it's not an option. And none of our reasons stand up to the biblical exhortation that we find throughout the scriptures and, and here including here in Nehemiah chapter 3. When you look at this through this chapter, it's an amazing array of people who build this wall. You have political leaders who could say, you know what, I, I'm too important. And yet there they are building the wall. You have goldsmiths and perfumers who could say, that's not my gifts. That's not what I'm trained to do. I, I, that's not my thing. And yet there they are building the wall. You see children participating. One guy, it even mentions that one man brings all of his daughters in to help, which is significant in a male-dominated culture. And people could say, could say, look, that's for the men to do. That's for that group of people to do, not me. And yet there they are building the wall. And some of the people take responsibility for the area right around their house because that's all they can do. Other people do what's around their house and they do someplace else and they go to different places in the wall. They're all doing something. I find it interesting, the work of this man, Malkajah. He's a ruler. He's some kind of an elected official, probably wealthy. He's probably got some clout. He could probably get out of helping. And what does he do? He gets the privilege of repairing the dung gate. They don't name it that for no reason. I mean, this is like, you know, having nursery duty some weeks, I suspect. You know, it's brutal. And yet here he is, working on the wall, working on the gate. And what I find so fascinating is that it's in direct contrast to these people, the nobles from Tekoa, who say, we're not doing it. We're too good. We're too important. We're too busy. That's not our thing. We, we don't really know what to do. All of the reasons, and why do they have these reasons? Because they are self-centered. They don't think they owe anything to the rest of the people in the city. Because they see participation as an option. And the scriptures tell us it's an expectation. You know, there are no insignificant details in Scripture. In this list, we're given details. All these details about these people who build the wall, that's not accidental. And they come from all walks of life. And some are trained and some are not. And, but all are committed to the common good of God's purpose. And so when they say we're building the wall, they jump in and they start working. And from Genesis to Revelation and on through the, the church, through the, the Reformation era... 
community is not treated as optional among God's people. But then something very strange happens in the, in the 18th century, in the period of enlightenment. And people begin to believe in private, individualistic faith. And they believe that that faith can survive without the community of faith, without the church. And in the 200 or so years since then, it's just continued to get worse. Because it's so subtle. And it sounds right to our culturally sensitive ears. I read the other day a quote by businessman, inspirational writer Dan Zadra, who said, The best day of your life is the one on which you decide your life is your own. No apologies or excuses. No one to lean on, rely on, or blame. The gift of life is yours. It's an amazing journey, and you alone are responsible for the quality of it. Now, I understand what he's saying. You you can't expect people to do your life for you. But it also makes me very nervous. Because when you read that, you get the sense that he's saying, you can do it by yourself. If you're committed enough, if you're into this enough, you can do it on your own. You don't need anyone. And what's so scary to me is that when I first read that, I thought, yeah, that's pretty true. And then I went, whoa, whoa, wait a second. And I suspect we do that as well. Because the biblical, the biblical narrative and the word, biblical exhortations tell us that the kingdom of God is about me and you and all of us together. And until we see the kingdom of God as more than just me, we will have a warped, self-centered, irresponsible, unbiblical view of ourselves and others and God. You see, our life in the kingdom and what we do for the kingdom only makes sense as it relates to others and what they're doing in the kingdom. Now, if people coming together to build the wall doesn't mean that they're all clones of Nehemiah. God isn't looking for a monochrome group of people. He doesn't want all of you to look like me. And I know you're all grateful for that. We're all grateful for that. If he were, he wouldn't have created us with so much variety. You know, he wouldn't have created us with different gifts and abilities and and desires and personalities. But it's clear that our life with Christ and our gifts and our abilities and our personalities only make sense in the context of bringing them together for the kingdom with the church. This is Paul's message to the Corinthians. In chapter 12, the passage we read, he talks about the church as a human body and our bodies consist of different parts and and these parts have different functions and some are more visible than others and some seem to us more significant than others. But none of them has any real meaning outside of the body. None of them can even exist outside the body. A foot means nothing if it's just a foot. A colon means nothing if it's just a colon. A brain means nothing if it's just a brain. It's all of it together that makes it useful and brings it to its its purpose for existence. I'm fascinated when I read this passage, how many times it says, and next to them, and next to them, and next to them, and next to them. 21 times in this chapter, the word next is used. This is shoulder-to-shoulder work. 
You take your section of the wall and this person takes that next section and they take the next section. And they're building this wall around the city together. And the purpose of the wall is security. Without everyone working together, it's going to take so much longer to make the city secure. Without everyone working, the wall has, is going to have huge gaps in it. And the city is going to be vulnerable to attack and the people are going to be in peril. Even if 95% of the wall is done, if 5% is undone, they're going to be very vulnerable to attacks. And one of the reasons why we connect with each other in the church is this sense of, of coming together to help each other, to protect each other, to care for each other. We aren't just going through the motions with the ministries of the church. We're building the kingdom. We don't just do youth ministry because that makes us feel good. We do it because we're building a, a hedge of faith around our young people. And we don't just do children's ministries because that's what churches do. It's because we're building these walls of understanding for our children when they're young and as they continue to grow. We don't just do college ministry because, well, it seemed like a good idea. We do it because we believe as the church we can help students get a better understanding and a deeper understanding of their walk with Christ in the context of the church. And our goal and our dream is that when students leave here, if we've had an opportunity to connect with them as a part of the church, that when they go out to wherever they go, that's one of the first things they want to do is find a church and get connected and be a part of that body of Christ. We build this, this hedge of, of spiritual nurture around each other. And that's why we engage in mission work. And that's why we offer Bible studies and prayer events. And that's why we keep up our buildings and why we, we sing together. And we have ushers and greeters and all the things that we do in the church. In one way or another, our ministries together, our connection together is enabling us to close the gap. To create an atmosphere for knowing Christ and experiencing Christ and growing up in Christ that then enables us to go out into a world that is opposed to Christ and to do that with grace and power and with dignity and joy and with peace and love. Without the wall, they are completely vulnerable. And the wall doesn't stop the opposition. Chapter 4, right off the bat, begins talking about the the opposition coming at them, and it continues throughout the rest of the letter. But with that wall in place, they have a place to go where they feel secure. A place where they can come together, and they can regroup, and they can learn, and they can get stronger together. And the church does the same thing. I think one reason we struggle to get involved and to connect ourselves with each other is because we're not sure it really has that much to do with us. You know, doing ministry for other people is great, that's fine, but what does that really mean for us? The truth is, it has everything to do with us. And I believe until we see that and, conf- and affirm that, we're just going to sit on the sidelines and we'll let other people do the work and we leave ourselves as a whole group vulnerable. We participate in the work of the kingdom because we believe in the greater and bigger idea of the kingdom. 
Involving ourselves in ministry, particularly when it's something that isn't easy for us or natural for us or something that really challenges us beyond what is comfortable for us, we are making a decision to see our lives and our faith in the long term rather than just the short term. And we're reminded again that the kingdom of God is about me and you and all of us together. And until we see the kingdom of God as more than just me, then we will live with a warped, self-centered, irresponsible, unbiblical view of ourselves and others and God. Because ultimately, the connection and the commitment to the church is an act of worship. It is an act of worship. It is one of the significant ways in which we worship God. It's intriguing to me that as this chapter begins, it begins with the priests dedicating their work to the glory of God. And when the last section of the wall is completed, it's the priests again who are lifting the stones and doing the work. We have a tendency to think that things like building a wall is sort of spiritually peripheral, but it's not. It's part of the kingdom work that God calls us to. And every act of service that we do for the kingdom of God and for each other is dedicated to the glory of God and it has meaning and purpose. And if we could get our minds around that truth, I think it would drastically change how we see the church, how we see the kingdom, how we see each other, how we see ministry. And the irony is that God has designed spiritual growth to be most significant in service. Involvement in ministry is the primary catalyst for spiritual maturity. When you ask anyone who has ever taught a Sunday school class, for instance, over and over again, I hear this from people. It doesn't matter if they're teaching children or teaching adults or youth or anyone. I hear this over and over again. People say, I learn so much more when I teach than when I sit and listen. And when we serve, God has a chance to challenge us and work in us and stretch us and use us. And it's not Bible study. It's not music. It's not prayer as important and essential as those things are. It's joining ourselves in regular active service. That is the most profound means that God uses to bring about spiritual maturity in our lives. When we feel spiritually stunted or when we feel like we have plateaued spiritually, our natural reaction is to retreat into ourselves. But God calls us to give and to love and to serve. Because in that service is the greater challenge and the greater potential for growth. Because the kingdom of God is about me and you and all of us together. And until we see the kingdom of God as more than just me, we are going to continue to live with a warped, self-centered, irresponsible, unbiblical view of ourselves and God and others. 
I'm convinced that there's no more powerful and vivid image of what we see here in Nehemiah 3, in 1 Corinthians 12, and throughout all the pages of Scripture. This biblical understanding of the kingdom of God and the church and the role of the church in every person's life. I don't think there's anything more vivid and significant imagery than that of that than the Lord's Supper. This table not only draws us to Christ, it draws us to one another. At this table, there's no such thing as social classes or giftedness or personalities or any of those things that we often see dividing us. At this table, we are one in Christ. At this table, we acknowledge that we are nothing without Christ. At this table, there is unity in Christ and around Christ. This table is for every one of Christ's followers a connecting point for the kingdom. This morning, as we take a few moments to ponder our willingness, our desire to connect with Christ and with his people, let this table open your ears to hear his call to come together to him. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we ponder your kingdom and as we ponder this table, we give you thanks for all of your mercies to your people through the ages. When we were in slavery, you sent us a redeemer and you brought us out as your people. When we disobeyed you and wandered in the wilderness, you restored us and you brought us into the promised land as your people. And when we turned away from you and you sent us into exile you raised up people like Nehemiah and Ezra and you brought us back and you restored us as your people and ultimately you sent your son and you have Created in him a new people. Father, today we stand in the history of your people through the ages and we give you thanks. We pray, Father, that as we prepare to receive the bread and the cup, that you will speak deeply into our souls individually and collectively. 
We pray that you will not only renew us in our inner spirits, but that you will also reconnect us as your people. And let us be your body in this place, in your kingdom. We pray your blessing upon the bread and the cup to each of us and to all of us. And we ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen.